0: Um, due to the length of our passage today, you can stay seated. We're going to begin with Deuteronomy 1714 to 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children, in Israel. And from 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, again, thank you and praise you that you are a God who speaks. That in your word you you tell us things and you give us insight into things that we deeply need to know. Um, And we pray that this morning that you would give us open ears and hearts to hear you speak to us. That we might be led to worship and adore and love you. Help us as we uh, now turn to your word and and do this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, this morning, uh, we're considering this law of the king from Deuteronomy 17, and this is really part two, uh, following on last week's sermon on Deuteronomy and the gospel of Jesus and how this orients us as God's people to think and engage politically, Jeff kind of highlighted this last week, right? You say the word politics and church, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh. So listen to his sermon first before you get upset, and then, listen, you know, and then come back and talk to me. But if you haven't listened to it, it was really good. It was so good. I don't normally get up and say, you have to listen to last week's sermon. You really have to listen to it if you haven't heard it. Podcast, YouTube, website, do yourself a favor. Okay, we're going to jump right into Deuteronomy 17. I want us to think about these instructions for the king, and four things that we're going to think about this morning. The uniqueness of the biblical view, what this law forbids, what it requires, and then the real king that we all need. So, first, the the uniqueness of the biblical view. If you're here this morning and you believe in the the doctrine of the separation of powers that there should be checks and balances in government to keep any one person or any one group from having too much power and being able to use that power and wield that power to exploit others in in an oppressive way. If you're here this morning and you believe in human rights, you believe that all people are equal and ought to be treated with dignity and respect, these beliefs trace back to the Bible. What we have in this passage is Just utterly astounding if we realize the cultural context of the ancient Near Eastern world and how radically different this view of political leadership is. The norm in the ancient Near Eastern world would have been strong, centralized, hierarchical forms of government with the king at the very top. Consider what we have here. First, if you were with us last week, You will remember that this whole section that deals with political order and the laws concerning it, it starts with the people. It is the responsibility of the people to appoint judges in their towns. The people are charged with the responsibility of working together as a community to promote justice and righteousness and the good. Each community is responsible to live together under God's reign and live this out as a people. And there's various roles. Some of them we looked at last week a little bit. There's the judge. Deuteronomy talks about the priest. Uh, a couple of chapters later, there's the prophet. And each of these roles and offices has different functions. But when we get to this section, Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 14, and we read these instructions about the king, the first thing that should kind of jump out is how unnecessary the king is. We'll get to why the king's important in a second, but it's really shocking. This point in Israel's history, with God reigning as their king, when it comes to human kings, there's almost this sense of, you could have one, I guess, if if you want one, but you don't need one. The king comes almost as an afterthought, after all the important stuff of the people and the responsibility to take leadership in their communities. And if you're going to have a king, this king will be like no other king the world has known. Doing kingship in Israel was going to be different from the way everybody else did it. You can eventually have a king, but this king is not to hoard riches and money. He's not to hoard women and wives. He's not to lift himself up as superior to the rest of the people, to which you would wonder, why would you want to be a king? And that's like what a king does. That's like the job description of a king. Israel was to be unique in the way that they do kingship, and this is because Israel lives out of a very, very different story than the other nations and cultures around them. So many of the cultures in the ancient Near Eastern world at that time viewed their kings as uniquely connected to the divine realm and the gods. It was not unusual for there to be uh, mythologies or legends that would connect the king and his ancestors to the gods. Some nations and cultures even thought of their king as divine. But not in Israel. Because in the Bible, God tells a story, beginning in the book of Genesis, about God, the great king, who creates this world and he creates all people in his image, not just the king, but all people, all human beings made in God's image, made to reflect the divine glory. And not only does he, call, not only does he make us in his image, but then he calls us to rule and to exercise dominion, to be like little kings under the great king, And if you keep reading the story that that Israel was meant to read and understand who God is and what the world is and how they are to live into it, you read Genesis through Deuteronomy and it tells the story about this good world that God made, but yet that people turned from God and fell into sin, and so the world is broken. And one of those places that you see that is in politics. And so you think of a book like Exodus, right, where you have a king, Pharaoh, who wields oppressive power against God's people. And God judges this king, and he leads his people out of bondage. And then in the law, he gives a different vision of political order, one that seeks to take people back toward the original goal that was given in creation, the equality of all people. And also now, because of sin, protection against corruption, abuse of power, and maintaining the responsibility and the dignity of the people in work in society. I mean, again, what we have here, if we appreciate it, is so remarkable. And it's one of the ways that we come to see the uniqueness of the Bible, and that we come to see that the Bible is truly God's Word, that this is divine revelation. Where else did such a cult- countercultural wisdom come from At a time where this just wasn't done, at a time where the records of kings and their acts and their achievements were written down to show how great and how awesome they were, here comes the Bible, and it limits the authority of a king, and it pushes against pretty much every way that the other kings would have gone about doing this role. Here comes the Bible, and not only does it do that, but then in the historical books that follow, the bible criticizes judges and exposes the kings of israel from the best to the worst listen to what one scholar writes on this he says to put it mildly such a dismissive treatment of national royalty is not normal in the ancient world other sacred texts meaning those outside the bible from other ancient near eastern cultures do not harshly criticize the office of kingship nor do they dwell so unremittedly on the failings and limitations of their monarchs. They exalt the king, praise him, smooth over his weaknesses, flatter him, and magnify his achievements. Not so in the Bible. So much for the idea that the biblical God is an invention to bolster the power of earthly kings. Robert Gannus, he's a professor of humanities at Loyola University in New Orleans, and in his book, No Tolerance for Tyrants, he writes this, By expressing criticism of this signal and important human institution, biblical authors were actually affirming basic equality of all human beings before God more than a thousand years before it became vogue in political discourse. What we have in this text is just astounding. So let's, let's think more about these instructions and what they tell us. What does this instruction forbid and then, and then what does it require? Remember, we've been saying in Deuteronomy that, that these laws in Deuteronomy, what they're meant to do is they're meant to orient us toward God's moral order, to, toward the way that God made the world and, and the good life He calls us to. And Israel, obviously, as they're receiving this, they're in the wilderness, but we've also said there's a way in which we could say metaphorically, like, Israel is in the wilderness of just a messy, chaotic, broken world, and God comes to them in that place and He orients them toward His moral order, toward the way He's made things to be. And so we've said again and again that though we live in a different time and a different place when we see where God is orienting people, even though we're over here and Israel might be over there, we, we can see how this applies to us and what this would mean for us. So let's think first. What does the law forbid? To just make it real simple, the, it's, it's idolatry. God is concerned that His people will be led into idolatry, into centering their lives both individually and communally on something other than God. Trusting in something other than God, relying on something other than God. And so, if you look starting at verse 15, all of these things forbidden have idolatry, I would argue, as the main concern. This is why the king must not be a foreigner. This is why the king must not acquire lots of horses and many wives. It was so normal in the ancient Near Eastern world to gather lots of horses to show off your military power. It was also very normal to intermarry with other nations, right? Because if your nation and your king has five wives from five different countries of national royalty in those countries, that creates international alliances. It was so normal to amass just so much wealth. I mean, this, this is like, that's what a king should do. Like he should amass wealth. He should build the military. He should do all these things except in Israel. Because in Israel, God. the real king. God is the real king. And so anyone or anything that would distract or hinder the people from their ultimate allegiance to Yahweh was forbidden. And you can now see, this is why I wanted us to have that 1 Samuel 8 text. You can see the problem with the request that's given in 1 Samuel 8 from the people. Deuteronomy allows for the people to ask for a king like the nations But when you read those instructions in Deuteronomy 17, you will realize that this king will be nothing like the king of the nations. And yet that is what the people want. They want a king patterned after the nations. They want a king that's going to lead to all sorts. I mean, they don't want this, but this is what happens. Samuel and God says this is going to lead toward injustice, abuse of power, the king placing himself above everyone else, all the things that are described in verses 10 through 18. There's the desire to have this king patterned after the way of the nations, and God says, that desire is a rejection of me. Verse 7, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king. And this is the huge potential problem with kingship in general, which is what Deuteronomy 17 is seeking to protect against. But look at what it requires. What it requires, I think, again, to put it real simple, is servant leadership. Servant leadership that reflects God, the real king, right? God is the real king, and because God is the real king, human beings, this earthly king is to be under God and under the authority of God's Word. And so, verse 18, one of the things the king must do is write out his own personal copy of Deuteronomy, I want you to just think for a minute, if you, you know, were this person who was going to become king, how such an activity would form you. I mean, imagine writing down the book of Deuteronomy, all the things that we've been studying this year, all the things that we will continue to study, what it says about God, what it says about the worship of God, what it says about how we are to know God and follow Him, what it says about justice about righteousness. You are to write all of this down, not missing any part, not altering any part, because there's the Levitical priest whose job it is to make sure that everything you've written is correct. Think about how that would form you. And then, right, certainly as a king, as a monarch, I would imagine there's a lot of stuff to do. That sounds like a really busy job, overseeing the nation i would assume is pretty time consuming and yet the one thing the most important thing the daily activity of the king is to read and hear god's word trusting god living as a fellow creature under the reign of god not exalting himself among his brothers keeping and doing these instructions I think most of us know, there's been a lot of books written on these things recently about how formative habits are. The things we do every day shape the people that we become. How how would this shape a person? It would press on you. The most (laughs) fundamental aspect of your job is to reflect the great king and never in any way distract others from him. You could understand why in Israel, one of the recurring metaphors for the king is that of a shepherd, because God, the real king, is a shepherd, one who leads and guides and cares for and protects his people, his sheep. And so if that is what God is like, then any leader who is going to serve faithfully and well must not divert the people away from God, but must be a shepherd, must be one who is not going to oppress and harm the people, but must be humble in how they lead, for they are not the king. Let's let's apply some of this. Here's some things that Jeff said last week. I'm going to almost state them, and if you're like, whoa, 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 Let's talk about it later, or ask Jeff about it, because he preached on it. But here's some things that we said last week. The gospel is inherently political. The good news of Jesus proclaims a king and a kingdom. The most important political reality is that Jesus, through the resurrection, is the king of this world. He says, all authority has been given to me. And because Jesus is king, and because he alone can bring the righteousness that our world needs, he alone can make us right with God, he alone can reconcile us to one another, he alone can change us to become people who love God and love our neighbor, because of this, the role of human governments and the scope of what can be done is limited. The metaphor, and I think this is super helpful, or the image of human governments is like babysitters keeping order and peace and justice as much as possible so that the true king can do his work in the world through his people. And if this is our political reality, then how should we think about political re- leaders in the government as well as in the church? I think first, we must resist political idolatry. When we act Like the most important political event is the next election, we engage in political idolatry. It is a failure to recognize that fallen human governments will never be able to usher in the world that we need. And it is a distraction and a hindrance to the real king and our allegiance to him. And in the wider American church, it is a serious problem. We said last week, our primary political calling is to live out the reign of Jesus together, inviting others to come and to know this king and to know his good rule. And it is because of that political reality that I thought we, we, we need to think about how Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy would shape us as we think about leaders in the government, leaders we would support in the government. Here are some things that I think it would lead us to. We would, we would support leaders in the government who recognize the limitations of what can be done and what they can do. We would support leaders in the government who recognize people as human beings and view their role as a place of service, not self-exaltation. We would do best, or people who would do the best job of maintaining relative order, peace and justice and supporting the freedom that is necessary for the church to do its work and for people to be able to hear the gospel and consider it and come to know their king. And in times when we feel perhaps weak, or we feel vulnerable, which I think is very much what is going on in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was a good judge, but his sons are doing a poor job and he's going to die, and the people feel vulnerable, and they feel weak, we have to listen to that warning from Samuel. And we have to listen to the warning that comes in the following narrative about King Saul. A man who looked powerful, who looked successful, who looked like the kind of person that would lead and make you feel safe, but yet who did not possess the character necessary to lead. And this is also true in the church as we think about leaders in the church because in the American church, we have at times gone after leaders like King Saul. We've elevated leaders to unchecked levels of authority, We've elevated leaders who did not possess the moral character necessary to be a servant leader. I mean, take, for example, the very American phenomena of celebrity pastors. There is something that feels very reassuring when we can follow someone who seems very impressive and very important, and our faith might feel less weak if you're in a church of 1,000 or 10,000. And I'm not saying big churches are bad, but, but there is something there versus maybe being in a church of 50 people that is dwindling, and that just feels so unimpressive and so weak. We, ha- we have at times in the American church, speaking broadly, gone after leaders and followed leaders who failed the character test of humility and a fear of God that would check their pride because they appear powerful and confident, and that makes us feel good. Some of you are probably familiar. We've mentioned this before, but Christianity Today had a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which chronicled the story of Seattle megachurch, Mars Hill, and uh, their senior pastor, Mark Driscoll. And uh, throughout this podcast, as people were interviewed and they were sharing their experience at the church, there was a, a consistent theme that I remember, uh, and, and it was basically this. Early on, pretty much from early on, there were, there were issues with character godliness, humility. There was a pridefulness. There was an ego. There were certain narcissistic tendencies. There were these little warning signs. There were these little abuses of power. But look at how many people are coming. Look at how big the church is. And that blinded them from the reality of what was going on. And as the podcast made clear numerous times, it wasn't just like it was this one church, but it was like this, this church almost became a model for numerous churches of how to do church. There were, ten, there were you know, tons of churches and church leaders that were influenced by the quote-unquote success of Driscoll. Pastors who learned how to pastor from watching him preach, from going to conferences he spoke at, The authority and leadership given to pastors and elders should always be an authority that reflects the servant leadership of Jesus. Listen to this passage from 1 Peter 5. Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. First, that is just astounding to me, right? I mean, this is Peter. He knew Jesus personally. If anybody's a celebrity in the early church, that's Peter, although I don't think that's an appropriate designation. But he says, I appeal not because I'm Peter, I appeal because I'm a fellow elder. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then a few verses later to the whole church, he writes, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility, for God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You can see why Deuteronomy so limits the role of the king. There are great dangers, and yet, we need a king. And this is like, it's a real tension in the Bible. We've seen the concerns, the dangers of a king, the need for checks and balances, the reworking of the job description, and yet it is really, really good when the people have a good king. The book of Judges, for example, highlights this need of a king in this repeated line in the book where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes it was just chaos we are vulnerable and we are weak and we get afraid and while those feelings can drive us to choose all the wrong sorts of leaders the right leader it can lead to flourishing And there are these moments in the Old Testament story where a king like David or a king like Solomon, you see the heights of what can happen under a king while even both David and Solomon fail spectacularly in all sorts of ways. And that's this tension in the Bible that you have with the king. Oh, how we would thrive if we had the king that we need. And yet king after king comes, and they all seem to fail until we get to the New Testament until we get to Jesus, and we see Jesus, God in person in our world, and we see what a king should be. Here is someone who will defend us. Who, here is someone who has power to help us, who can deal with the ultimate enemies that no king and no human government can deal with. He can do something about sin, and about human evil, and about death, and about suffering and injustice. Here is the king who, unlike any king this world has ever known, came to truly serve, who says, I am the good shepherd. The other leaders who came before, those who failed the people, who used their positions to exalt themselves and privilege themselves, Jesus says, they are thieves and robbers. They came to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that my sheep might have life. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for my sheep. Throughout Lent, each week we're going to start by singing that song that we started with this morning, My Song is Love Unknown. It is uh, seven verses long. Um, We're going to keep adding a verse each week, so next week we'll sing two verses and and so on. Until we get to Holy Week at our Monday Thursday service, where we are going to sing the whole thing. And it is probably my favorite hymn. And one of the reasons is, why it's so deeply resonated with me, is how it speaks of the love of our king. Our king who came to serve us, to, to save us, and yet we didn't recognize him, and we didn't want him, and we hated him, and we perverted justice to kill him and get rid of him. And yet, as we will sing again and again, our song is love unknown. Our Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be, that he might make us lovely. This is the great beauty and glo- of our glorious King, our King who reigns in heaven right now who in his body still bears the marks of his suffering and death. Listen to these words that we're going to sing in our closing hymn. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends their burning eyes at mysteries so bright. This is your king this is the king we need, this is the king the world needs, and this is the political reality that must anchor us as we live in this world, as we seek to live out our central political calling to live under the reign of Jesus here in this place, in our relationships, in our households, in our work, with our neighbors, in our communities, together as the church.